Hey, good morning. Uh, it's Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Uh, that song on Monday that I mercifully didn't sing a lot of the lyrics to. Monday, Monday. That's the uh, that is the mamas and the papas. So I was correct. I thought I was. I wasn't sure. I wouldn't listen to that song plus California Dreamin'. Uh, so if you want to get a good feel for like mid '60s to late '60s, uh, like rock, pop, folk. Uh, the Mamas and Papas really hit the sound really well. They uh, had that California mystique. Um, if you live here in the United States, California always has this uh, kind of this uh, promised land view in the eyes of all of us. It's uh, where a lot of our media comes from, our movies and music and all that. Motown even moved out of Detroit to uh, set up on the West Coast, which was kind of the end of Motown. It lasted for a few more years, but Motown was born and bred in the heart of Detroit. I was there. I went to the uh, Hitsville, the house where they uh, where they made all that music, all that 60s music, the early 60s music. Um, just a, just an ordinary house that they converted to a uh, to a recording studio, and then they had offices there, and then they began to buy uh, other houses on the block. Uh, to do different things with Motown, like the the marketers and the people that helped with the dancing and the people that did the um, uh, the, f the fashion and the uh, clothing and the accessories. They all bought, all these houses were bought like a, like a side of Monopoly board. And pretty soon, I think Motown owned most of the block. And the, uh, most of the singers from Motown were from Detroit. And uh, they were mostly... Uh, church kids who grew up in the church singing uh and uh they wound up becoming pop stars and they were very disciplined about how they did their music it's very catchy uh barry gordy the uh owner and creator of motown used to pen songs while he was working in the assembly line of a, of a automobile manufacturer i don't remember which one but he would make little notes of songs that came to him so Motown had kind of an assembly line uh, philosophy of putting songs together, and they had these really good uh, people work in different areas of the Motown company to help the uh, musicians and the stars and the singers uh, become the best they could be. So the singers were kind of different than the musicians. The musicians were fairly consistent in Motown. Uh, they, they were the same group of people that did all the recordings, and then they would just uh, sub in the uh, the the singers and the songwriters uh, were a pretty consistent group of people too, two or three. I think one of them was a Dozier, which is actually related to one of the kids I used to work with at my former high school. Pretty cool. I asked him if he was related to this uh, Sterling Dozier guy because his name was Sterling too, and he shook his head and or Lamont Dozier. That's it. The guy who wrote for Motown was Lamont Dozier, and uh, I asked. Uh, I asked the kid Sterling if he was related because his older brother was Lamont. Uh, Sterling's older brother was Lamont, and he shook his head. And I'm like, man, that is a root of genius there. You guys have some pedigree if you're related to Lamont Dozier for sure because he was one of the key songwriters for Motown. But nonetheless, talk about California. California, Monday, Monday. I watched the uh, film Bottle Shock last night, last night, which uh, I said last night twice. That wasn't an echo, uh, which was the story of... Um, Mid-70s winemakers in California uh, going head-to-head -head with French winemakers and coming out on top. Everybody thought California winemakers were a bunch of hicks, which they kind of were. 
but they really took wine seriously and they wound up besting the uh, French in a competition which threw the, uh, the wine world upside down, of course. Nobody expected it. The French were uh, dethroned to some degree from their kingly reign over fine wine. It's a cool story. It's a kind of underdog story. One of the hidden uh, elements of why California wine is so great, though, and it comes out in one of the characters, was the Hispanic Latinos that work the fields. They know those uh, fields very, very well. And uh, they don't get a lot of credit for it, but a lot of the uh, pruning, a lot of the picking, and a lot of the maintenance of the soil, and all that stuff comes at the hand of people that work the land, and very close to the land, and know the plants very intimately. And that... To some degree in California is the Hispanic Latino population, and they deserve a lot of credit for anything California-wise in the wine industry. They're the ones that have been the backbone of it, the infrastructure, which kind of ties into today's story a bit. Um, teams are important. They really are. You know, Part of my individual orientation doesn't mean that teams aren't important and groups aren't important but everybody in the group should you know have a, an identity based on on their own values and who god made them to be and everybody has different giftings not everybody's not everybody's going to be able to do everything and uh, that's just the way it goes there's going to be people that are better at certain things and people that are better at other things I had a co-worker or fellow counselor that was very good in mediating conflict between girls that were in uh, you know, those kind of battles that girls can get into in high school. It's not pretty. They're very, very mean to each other. And that kind of stuff kind of drove me a bit crazy after a while because a lot of times these girls didn't want to put it aside. I, being a typical male, would just tell them, like, stop it. Like, whatever your beef is, just get over it. Move on. Um, it's not leading to good things. Like, sometimes it would turn into physical altercations. And if you want to see a bad fight in high school, it's not the boys that fight violently, usually. Usually the boys are making a show of it just to pretend, uh, show they're not, uh, it is pretend to show that they're not chicken or something. But they're kind of looking for the fight to be broken up pretty quickly usually. Unless they really, really hate each other and then it could be bad. But the uh, fights that girls get into, oh boy. And believe it or not, sometimes it's over a boy who's not worth fighting for. But man, they, they go all out and they don't care about if there's cameras or staff around. And man, they start pulling hair. Oh, it is it is violent. I'm telling you, you've never seen a fight so violent than two high school girls going at it. And you got to be careful about breaking it up. But I, I believe in uh, in team working on teams and being a part of teams. If for no other reason, there's a lot of stability and there's a lot of continuity. I went on sabbatical twice in my job. And you know, the school just rolled on. And I had no illusions when I retired that the school was going to suffer at all. And that, that's just the ego speaking. I knew full well that the high school is committed and it's designed to outlast the individual. So nobody in that building is irreplaceable. The closest that you get to an irreplaceable person is probably the admin assistant who works for the principal. If they're good, they have their pulse on the entire school. And that principal needs a very, very good person in that position. That's about as close to an irre irreplaceable position in the high school, believe me. And now you have teachers that obviously make huge impacts on kids and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, that's uh, that's just the way it goes. But I liked working on a team in a lot of ways because there was different people I could go to for different things, and they compensated for my weaknesses. <clears throat> and I brought my series of strengths to the school, which was being very academic and very career-oriented. I always felt the best thing for a kid that was in an at-risk background, the best thing for that child 
uh, male or female, was to have a goal and to have a dream that they could work towards that was attainable. Uh, and to use the mechanism, the school, the educational and the training to improve their skill sets. So when they got out uh, to the uh, world, they had something to offer and they could overcome their background. And a lot of times kids that go through hard things, um, they have a, a resilience and a, and, a, and a persistence if they've learned to channel it. The kids that have been more baby just don't have. And it's interesting in the wine film yesterday, uh, uh, Bottle Shock, you should watch it. It's a good film. Uh, one of the wine uh, vintners, one of the vineyard owners who's struggling, trying to make his way, mentions to the intern that grapes that get babied, that get watered and fertilized and get the, all, the, all the things that look like it's going to lead to a really successful grape, make the grape lazy and pampered and more disease prone. It's You have to be kind of stern with the grape you have to have an environment that doesn't give them water all the time it forces them to be tenacious uh, and it also brings out a sweetness in the um in the grape uh, that wouldn't happen otherwise thomas jefferson was driven crazy because he loved french wine he had spent a, a decent amount of time being the ambassador uh, to france for the united states and he loved french wine and had a lot of it shipped to monticello but he was trying to grow wine in the hills of Virginia and just was stymied and couldn't figure out why. Well, the climate is just too humid. It's too hot. There's too much water. So uh, Thomas Jefferson being an inquisitive person, you know, he had a lot of mixed qualities, but he was very detail oriented. He had a lot of great qualities. He had some pretty bad qualities too, as we know with owning slaves and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, but he couldn't figure out why the wine just wasn't great in, uh, in Virginia, in Charlottesville, in Monticello. And the soil's not right. It's not volcanic. Uh, the weather's too humid. The grapes grow at night, which they shouldn't do. Uh, when it's really, really hot and humid, the grapes just continue to grow, and they get tough, and they get rubbery. Uh, but, you know, in Napa Valley and uh, parts of France, uh, it's cool at night. It's warm during the day. It's generally pretty dry. The soil is usually pretty great for the grape, and that produces the best wine. So if you want great wine, you have to have great grapes. That's just the way it goes. So today, let's get into individualism a little bit. I know I'm rambling as usual. Hopefully, you love that part about me. Uh, remember, it's free. If you if you love it, all the better. So Soren's very big on the individual, and this uh, translator's introduction to purity of the heart. Uh, is to will one thing, which is a Hart, Harper Torch book, Douglas V. Steer. We talked about him previously. Um, the individual, all of Soren's thought ultimately had to pass through the needle's eye of whether or not it compelled men to face their sovereign responsibility as individuals. And this, too, was the pass of Thermopylae. Uh, now, if you don't know that from history, that's when... The Greeks repelled uh, the Persians at this pass called Thermopylae. It was like 300 Spartans against oh a crazy amount of Persians. It's not even wasn't even a fair fight, but they had to go through a narrow pass to get at them. And these uh, 300 Spartans put up a, a hell of a fight. Eventually, they were betrayed by somebody on their own side who <clears throat> showed the Persians a shortcut to get behind the uh, the uh, 300. Uh, and then they were betrayed because they were squished from the back and the front. And this, too, was the pass of Thermopylae at which Kierkegaard stationed himself to defend the individual against any philosophical, political, or religious teaching that tended to slack off this consciousness of the individual's essential responsibility 
and integrity. I've, I've uh, been a part of a lot of teams. One of, one of the teams I have the most experience with is basketball because I'm six foot eight. And until I blew my knee out, I actually had a fairly uh, fairly bright future in basketball. I was being slated to be being the starting center of my high school team as an 11th grader. And we played down the Central League, down towards Philadelphia. It was pretty competitive. It was the league that uh, Kobe Bryant eventually played in. Now, Kobe was a lot younger than me, so we would never have seen each other face-to-face. But he went to a high school called Lower Marion. Then I went to Conestoga, and that's part of the Central League, down towards Philly. And it produced a, a, a lot of stars, people that went on to play uh, at least in college, with some notoriety. Um, there were two All-Americans down in Philly at the time, uh, Lonnie McFarland, who played for Roman, and Tony Costner. I don't remember who he played for in high school, maybe West Philadelphia. But we actually played Roman when I was uh, a high school player <clears throat> at Conestoga, <clears throat> and Lonnie McFarland was a man among boys. Again, an All-American, six foot four or so, hairy chest, man jacked, and uh, we we put up a good fight. Uh, the varsity played against uh, Lonnie. Uh, he wound up getting a scholarship to go to St. Joe's, as did Costner. I think he was just one of these guys that kind of peaked early. He uh, he was great in high school, pretty good in college, but the time that he got to the pros, everybody was big. Everybody was jacked. and He was a great athlete, so all those advantages. He has a man boy and 17, 18 years old, kind of Lost its uh, advantage as time went on because people caught up. So Soren wants the individual to hold their ground. And if there's something on teams that I've seen happen over and over again, people like to think teams is kind of through rosy uh, sunglasses or glasses. They tend to think that, um, oh, you know, it's just so beautiful to be part of a team and everybody's pulling for each other and there's no I in team and all that kind of stuff. One of the dark sides of teams is when there's conflict and when there's people that are like in in in, uh, in uh, collaboration with each other against other people on the team. And that happened to me. Just a quick story here as we uh, move forward through Soren. Um, when I played basketball, I was kind of a tall, good athlete. I didn't have good vision because of not having depth perception, so that's an advantage in basketball, obviously if you have spatial relation skills, and I didn't because of being born premature. I couldn't see distance very well. It's hard to be a good outside shooter if a person doesn't have good vision. Like Larry Bird had tremendous vision. Wayne Gretzky in hockey had tremendous vision. They were able to kind of see the court as a whole and all the moving pieces and, and see where the play would go. Uh, they said Wayne Gretzky used to uh, go skate to where the puck would be versus where it was. Everybody's was skating at where the, where the puck is. Wayne Gretzky could see where the puck was going. He had that visual ability. And if you see some of Larry Bird's passes, uh, either when he was in college or in, in playing for the Celtics, it just unbelievable vision. Larry Bird was slow. He was slow. He was slow as a statue, the slowest pro ever. Uh, but, man, could the guy pass? Could he? Uh, man, his slowness threw people off because he just played the game at his own pace. So it was just interesting. But one of the things I saw happen on teams, in eighth grade, I wasn't a great player. And I wound up displacing the starting center, who was kind of a man boy back in uh, grade eight. Uh, His his name was uh, Bill. And uh, he was tall for his age. But again, he was kind of a man before all of us were young men. We were still boys. And he was 
probably six foot one and pretty well developed for an eighth grader. So he, you know, he was a starter for a good chunk of the year. But about halfway through the year and going into ninth grade, I outgrew him. I was a better player, even though I couldn't shoot for, for squad. I was terrible outside shot. Uh, I could play around the rim, get six or seven points sometimes in a game, get a lot of rebounds, and I could always take the opposite players out of their game. I was just a tremendous defensive player. So think like Dennis Rodman. Uh, I wasn't going to put a lot of points on the board. Most of it was cleanup points, uh, getting rebounds and putting shots back in from fairly close range. And I actually found rugby to be a much better game for me because of the visual element. I could use my brawn and use my strength as a compensation for my lack of ability for uh, the visual side of the game, which in rugby isn't quite as important. But despite my visual disability, I wound up becoming a starting center and put Bill on the bench. And his two buddies on the team never forgot. Uh, They were like a triad. And Bill wound up going to a private school, so it didn't matter about him over time because he left the high school or didn't go to our high school. He went somewhere else. And I don't know what the situation was. But in ninth grade, Bill was sitting on the bench and I was starting. It created a tremendous amount of conflict to the point where I wasn't going to play high school basketball because of these two guys that were just basically ass, ass, you know, that's to me. I didn't do anything wrong. I was just the starting center. And it carried on to high school to the point where I wasn't going to play. I just didn't want to face these two, these two jackasses every, every practice and have to play with them. I thought they were, they were jerks and they were, I didn't do anything wrong. And, uh, I was convinced to play, uh, high school basketball because a kid from the different junior high, there was two different streams in our high school. One came from different East town, one group of players came from two different East Town, which was one junior high, and which are now called middle schools or whatever. And the other was Valley Forge uh, Junior High. And the two streams would merge into high school, and those, that became the high school team. And I got along well with the Valley Forge kids because I was actually closer to Valley Forge uh, Junior High School. My brother had gone there, but they had changed the districting lines a little bit for who went where. And I wound up going to a different a different junior high than my brother did. But if I had stayed at Valley Forge, I probably would have gotten along really well with the kids because they were good friends of mine on the high school team. But one of the good players from Valley Forge who played varsity um, convinced me to try out, and I did. Long story short, uh, it wound up being that I quit the team in grade 11. I just, my knee was blown out. These two kids would just not leave me alone. They would harass me, call me names, uh, Tried to embarrass me, did all kinds of nasty stuff. And one one day I walked up to the biggest of the two of them. And I just said I was going to kill him. I, was just, I just pushed him. I said, if you don't stop, I'm going to kill you. And I looked him right in the face and he backed down. But regardless, uh, I didn't do well in that situation. I had reasons to not like these guys. Uh, they were they were not good people. And they still probably aren't good people. Hopefully they've changed. But at the time, they, they, they basically victimized me. And I got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I just quit the team. And told him to blow off and whatever if I had to do it again though I would have told the guys on the team listen you know you can make life hard for me if you want you can do that you can make my life absolutely awful but I guarantee you if you don't treat me well it's going to hurt the team and you want to win we don't want to be embarrassed by teams that have less talent than me so if you guys want to win as a team if you guys want to be the best players you can be you're going to have to start treating me better because I will not be able to play in this environment any longer. And I will just quit the team and walk out of here and, and say goodbye forever. And the team wound up becoming pretty pretty mediocre over time. I was a good player. I was, a, I was one of the players that the high school was depending on to make us a competitive team. And when I walked off the team, 
and said, there isn't enough whatever that you guys offered me to make me deal with this. Uh, with a bad knee, I just didn't care anymore. The team just became a very average team, and they had some success. But I think if I had stayed on the team and been able to articulate, you know, if you treat me well with respect, I will give a lot to this team, and it will help the team become better. It will help you guys become better players. Now, you can decide right now if you're going to hold on to this situation from the past from eighth grade with this kid named Bill, or you can move on, and we can try to build a better team for all of us. I didn't have the maturity at the time. I didn't have the guidance at the time. I didn't have the wisdom at the time. But I think what Soren would give us advice in those situations is hold your ground. Explain your reality to people. Uh, if people are being unfair, you have to articulate the cost of that unfairness to the team as a whole. And also confront individual negative behavior towards you directly. I always try to do it privately. In 30 years of working in a public high school, most of them 29 in the same high school, I had to have some very difficult conversations with some colleagues, some supervisors, and also uh, some kids where, you, where there was times I did something wrong, so I had to listen. There were times I got chastised where I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but I also tried to not embarrass people publicly unless they were really asking for it. The only time I ever responded publicly is when the person had staked their claim publicly and made it something that had to be addressed because if you are quiet in those situations, you will uh, be assumed to be guilty because you didn't defend yourself. And there's a fine line between doing that and becoming retaliatory. But I would typically try to close the door, go down to somebody's room, go see the principal, close the door and say, listen, man, you know, what happened here isn't good. This is my side of it. You know, this is how I feel. This is what I did and what I didn't do. And I would say in my 30 years of working in public education, uh, I rarely, rarely did things wrong to the point where, you know, it was something that uh, somebody had a right to just really hammer me publicly. Most of the time it's a question of style. And I, working in a school, I want to end on this, uh, I definitely pushed the kids. There were times that I was trying to get them to see that uh, th that this was not the final stop in their lives, that they were going to go to college or post-secondary uh, options that were going to require them to be stronger and better than other kids. And uh, the, the problem is that the kids at the high school for a lot of years didn't see that. They only competed against each other, which wasn't really where the game was going to be. It was going to be competing against kids like me that came from very prestigious high schools that had all the the privileges and all the benefits of growing up in a very, very wealthy area. And I had to convince my students that this is not the game. You might think high school is the game, but it's really what follows here, the game. This is the preparation for the game. This is this is preliminaries. This is a scrimmage. And you're going to be facing kids that have had a lot of advantages, and you don't have those advantages unless you make them here. You can, you can find an easy way through high school. But you can also step up and really push yourself. So that was the gift I brought to the high school. I was super, super academic, super, super career-oriented. And uh, you know, I think for a lot of years, people appreciated the fact that was the piece I brought to the puzzle. Uh, so we're going to kind of end here a little bit. I could continue to go on, but my promise is to try to keep it on the low 20s somewhere. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I am enjoying a little bit of this Hawaiian coffee. We'll get more into the individual again. But stand your ground. Your own thermopylae, whatever it is, have courage of your convictions. Be honest with yourself. Stare at yourself in the mirror and admit your wrongs before God. And he will cleanse, cleanse you and then go to battle. Go to battle and stand your ground against the many, many adversaries that are out there. 
and be courageous. God has given you the tools and the talent to stand your ground and to make progress regardless. And as long as you're not betrayed by somebody on your own team, you will be able to fight well and fight, fight strongly.